Probably my main claim to fame is being related to Christy. That's, that's the real thing about me. It's my wife. Um, well, one February morning, 36 years ago in the year 1983, I had just arrived on my high school campus as a senior and seated myself in my customary desk in Mr. Mauser's advanced, S, um, advanced math class when my friend who sat in the seat ahead of me, Dan Sanford, one of several Christians I knew at the time, turned around and looked me directly in the eyes and said calmly to me, Matt, I really think you are going to go to hell. <laughs> and turned around. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John or studied it lately, uh, you know that in chapter 1, John declares the good news to us. He says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, we saw his glory, glory as of, of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he goes on. John says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. That's the good news. But I ask you, how I ask you, was Dan's message to me that morning in 1983, not yet a Christian, good news. And what is good or newsy? Or what is gracious or truthful about what Dan told me that day? Well, I think the answer is found in Paul's letter to Titus. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Titus chapter 3. I'm not going to read it quite yet, but just to get us ready for that, of course. Um, we get to spend a few minutes together this morning looking at that passage to see if we can tell why people call the coming of Christ good news and why I came to see it as good news, even because of what Dan said to me that morning. And actually, through this passage, we're going to see that God is actively revealing to us the beauty of who Christ is. And through whom, through Christ, how grace and truth are realized in him. And through Titus 3, God is going to empower us this morning together to see the truth about ourselves, the truth about grace... And the truth about good works. Those three things. And I think that it's especially strategic that we would do this today. Because we're five days into the new year. 2019. Who knows what date I'm going to write on my checks for the next six months, right? But by, the, by July, I'm usually caught up. So, so we're five days into two, 2019. And we want the grace and truth of Christ to imbue our view of, of, of the year ahead, don't we? So this is a strategic time for us to, to look at the gospel, really. So to put the passage in context just briefly, we should remember, the Apostle Paul wrote this short letter to his friend Titus in, in, in instructing him how to help Christians on the island of Crete. And besides instructing Titus to appoint leaders in every city, and especially to rebuke false teachers on the island, he wanted to encourage older Christians and younger Christians to live in a manner that was pleasing to God. And also, in the first part of chapter 3, as we'll see in a second, Paul reminds Titus to instruct Christians on the island to submit to their rulers and authorities and to love their neighbors. And then he reminds Titus of the most important thing he's supposed to teach these Cretan believers, and that is that, they, that he's to remind them who they were before God entered their lives, what gracious things God has done in saving them, and they get to devote themselves 
to good works as God's people. And that is, to put it another way, he must tell them, and, and us also, I believe, Paul's speaking to us, God is speaking to us through Paul's letter here, the truth about ourselves, as I said, the truth about God's grace, and the truth about good works. What is so important about these things that Paul says they are the thing that Titus should teach emphatically? Well, I think that as we learn what we learn from this passage, we're going to see that we should actually abandon ourselves and our hope in ourselves. And we should secondly cling solely and tightly and only to God who loves unrighteous people and makes them righteous. And finally, that we should embrace a life of good works from a radically new perspective. And may God do this to our souls today. So let's stand and hear the reading of God's word in Titus chapter 3. Thank you, David. Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that these who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. That reading. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for this day, for the privilege we have together to get to think about what you are revealing to us through your word. And we recognize our inability on our own to perceive, to understand, to hear what you are saying and who you are, and to appreciate fully and deeply all that you are doing on our behalf. So we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes, open our hearts, humble us, give us a humble posture of listening and the power from you to be able to comprehend the wonders of your grace this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in, in verse 1 and 2, you can see that Paul gives some very practical instructions to the people who are believers on the island of Crete. And he says that this is the way a person should live who loves God in relationship to their earthly authorities, people like governors and presidents. And then he also tells them how to live in relation to their neighbors and their friends and even the kind of people who irritate them and offend them, us also, he says that we should submit to rulers and authorities and that we should be prepared for every kind of good work. 
that we should speak evil of absolutely no one. And instead of spending our time quarreling, we should be reasonable people who show humble gentleness to every single person. Wow. Okay, that's quite a calling in, in two short verses there. So the question I have is, how is Paul going to contextualize that? Or, or what is he going to tell me about how to carry that out? How can you and I possibly show, possibly show perfect courtesy, or as the NAS version says, show every consideration for all people? How are we going to do that? Well, let's keep reading. In verse 3, what does Paul say, what does God through Paul tell us about ourselves in verse 3? I'm just going to read it again. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's not a pretty picture. And it does not initially, I think, seem relevant to the instructions that precede it in verse 1 and 2, but it actually is, and I think it will appear that way as we consider it for a few minutes. First of all, we should note to whom this description or this picture applies. Of whom is Paul speaking in verse 3? And if you'll notice, the pronouns change from verse 1 and 2 to verse 3. And Paul's talking about himself. And he's talking about Titus. And I think he's talking about the believers in Crete. He's saying, we were this way. I'm going to even say that he's describing you and me, too, in this passage. Now look again at the words he uses to describe what his life was like, what ours was like, before he and we came to know Jesus and his grace. He says, foolish. We were foolish. Disobedient. Led astray. Enslaved to passion and pleasures. Malicious envious, hateful, and hating other people. Now, before we go on with that, let's consider two questions about that description of ourselves. First, doesn't that seem a little bit extreme? I mean, would your mom say these things are true of you? Would your friends call you a hateful, foolish, enslaved person? Maybe it is extreme, but I actually think it's not, and here's why. I actually think this is a very accurate description of us apart from God's grace working in our lives. And here's why. Because I know myself. If you met me in high school, you would have laughed at my long hair. Secondly, you would have likely also thought that I was a pretty decent fellow. I mean, I was not a loud person. I was not a harsh person. I wasn't mean to my friends. I didn't do the classic things that Classic things that parents worry about their kids doing when they're teenagers. I didn't do drugs. I didn't steal things from the businesses in downtown Leavenworth. And even though I didn't do those things, which is great, I w that was not my full picture of me as a person. And as just one example, pretend you came to my house in 1981 and when I was 16 and you saw the way I treated Jenny Turnbull, my sister, when no one else was around. You would have changed your mind about me. In the privacy of our home, when my parents were down at the newspaper office working a lot, I treated my sister like dirt. I regularly called her names that are not printable in newspapers. I criticized my sister constantly. 
one hour of videotape from those conversations with her would convince you that deep down, actually, I was a very hateful person. And the tragedy is that I hated my sister, and she was actually, in many ways, a nice person. But maybe you think those were just my problems at age 16, and that this description Paul, Paul gives, actually God gives of us, doesn't really apply to you and your personal history. Let's just think about that for a moment, shall we? A sharp fellow named Rico Tice proposed an experiment a few years ago that I thought was genius. He said, what would happen if we took every thought that has passed through our minds and hearts during every day of our lives so far and made it all into a movie and then projected that movie on a screen in the middle of our hometown and invited everyone to come to the screening. Imagine if every kind thought that you have thought about another person and every malicious thought that you have had about another person showed up in detail on that screen. Every encouraging word you had spoken and every angry word you had muttered to yourself about another person gets broadcast in that movie. Every delightful daydream that you've had and every dark fantasy you have indulged in is shown in detail on the screen. Every single thing you've spent time thinking about is part of this movie. And everyone, your parents, your siblings, your friends, your kids, your parents' friends, the mayor, the city council... The whole town sits down to watch it with you. How are you going to feel about that? I don't think that's going to be a happy time for you. It wouldn't be for me. And so, is it possible that this description in this verse is actually pretty accurate? Is it possible that at times you've been foolish, disobedient? At times you've been enslaved to lust and passion? That you've been envious or malicious? Even a hateful person? For instance, have you ever put total confidence in your own independent plans or thoughts? Guess what Solomon says about that in Proverbs? Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but who walks, whoever walks in wisdom will be delivered. Or have you ever let anger take full control of your voice? Solomon said that a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Furthermore, don't you and I, like a child who can't stop himself from eating ice cream before sickness sets in, often take the good things that God brings into our lives and just sort of give ourselves over to them? The sobering thing is that God doesn't actually need us to make a movie for him to know what's really going on on the inside of us. But he sees our hearts and our minds as though they were completely uncovered to him because he's God. Like I did in high school, you might be fooling most of the people most of the time about what's really going on inside of you, but God knows. And just as importantly, when you and I are honest, we actually know, don't we, that we have a problem. And because I know my own hearts and my own, my own heart and my own thoughts, I don't think Paul's statement that we are disobedient, enslaved, and envious is extreme at all. In fact, maybe he's being nice about us. I think it's a true picture of our condition apart from God's grace at work in us. That's the first question. So the second question we should ask about this description, and we still might wonder, is it actually unloving of Paul and of God 
to say this about us. That to say that we've been foolish, deceived, malicious, hateful people. Now, as a portrait in words, this is sort of an insult to us. But while it may sting, I'm going to assert that actually it's very kind of God to tell us this about ourselves because it's the truth about us. This part of the Bible shows us that God actually knows what we already know about ourselves. That we're desperately broken people. And that we need help badly. In fact, I concluded that when Dan Sanford said those things to me, that he thought I was going to go to hell that February morning in 1983, that he was actually being kind to me. Believe it or not, when he said that, what he said that morning, I wasn't angry at Dan. I didn't get mad at him. But rather, I had that dry feeling in my mouth and that hollow feeling in my stomach. And I was stunned because I, I, I knew what was really going on in my thoughts and my heart every day of my life. I knew how I was treating my sister. Dan didn't know that. I knew my other long list of disobediences and foolish choices. I knew about the deep resentment I held towards people and anger I felt towards certain people in my life. I wasn't insulted at all. In fact, my immediate response was to say to myself, I think Dan's right. I am going to go to hell. Now, I admit that Dan's approach is not a one-size-fits-all spiritual conversation model. <laughs> I'm not, assure, not sure that his approach should be our template for gospel outreach in 2019. And also, to be, tr to be fair, it was part of a longer conversation over several months that I had with Dan, thankfully. But that moment ended up being very important in my life. And for that reason, I think what Dan Sanford did was being kind to me by telling me, by warning me of something he believed was true. And in the same way, God is being kind to you right now and me. He's being kind by telling us these things about our lives in verse 3. He's revealing truth to us about ourselves. Now think about how kind that is. If we keep going as foolish, disobedient, envious, hateful people with hearts like that, as if we keep going as people like that naturally go, it will not go well for us in the end. If we, end up, if we keep pursuing those things, we're in serious trouble both then and now also. In fact, Jesus taught that holding anger in our hearts, as an example, towards people in God's eyes is a form of murder. So God's telling us what is true about us so that we will realize that we have a grave problem so that we will recognize our urgent problem must be addressed in order to avoid the, the metaphorical semi-truck of God's impending judgment against sin coming right towards us. So I think he's telling us the truth that we're foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved people is not extreme at all. It's not an insult. It's actually God loving us with truth. So the question then is, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do with this picture of yourself? Or to put it another way, let's say you were in a desperate situation, and a life-threatening, dangerous situation even, even. Would you trust someone to save you who's best described as foolish, disobedient, a slave to passion, malicious, and hateful as a person? Would you trust them to save you? If this is the truth about ourselves, why would we ever trust in ourselves to save ourselves? 
Why would we ever put a shred of trust in ourselves that we know how to live, much less how to make ourselves acceptable before the holy, righteous God? Why would we ever look to our own efforts as the key to that relationship with God? Seeing so clearly this truth about ourselves, what is the reasonable thing then and the obvious thing that we should probably do? Well, abandon all hope in yourself and look somewhere else for your hope. Now, we're about to move to the next part of the passage, but I want to ask just one more question, okay? One more question that I think will fully help us appreciate what comes next. What do you think God should do to people who are like this picture in verse 3? How should God regard people who have filled their hearts with hatred and anger and malice and envy towards other people and have allowed themselves to be enslaved by their passions? I want you to think about that for a moment. God made the world... And God made every single person, you and I, in that world. And he made us with a specifically designed, good, beautiful purpose in mind. Much like an inventor might make a new kind of surgical knife to help doctors heal patients, for example. Jesus tells us that God's specific purpose for our lives is that we would love him with all of our hearts and minds. And that we would serve and love other people as much as we love ourselves. But we just noted with this picture something seriously wrong with our hearts and our minds. Instead of focusing our thoughts and our yearnings on God, we filled them with all kinds of deceit and envy and hatred. In other words, it's as if the surgical knife that the inventor made has ceased to help people and it's become instead a tool of destruction and harm. What should God do with people who are described as verse 3 is described? Should he just forget about uh, our hearts and what our hearts have done, like, like Augustine said, curved in upon themselves and cease to love him? Should he, should he just bypass that? That doesn't seem very wise given that these are people who are deceiving and deceiving other people and are malicious and hurting other people who are God's, also God's special creations. But what should an inventor do with a surgical knife that goes rogue? Shouldn't he discard it? especially if it's destroying instead of healing? I mean, what do you do with a moldy toothbrush? Or what do you do with a vacuum cleaner that spreads dirt instead of sucking it up? You would think that that's exactly what a just, righteous God who impartially judges human beings would do, that he would condemn those people who have rebelled against him. It's, it's right. They deserve it. But let's see what Paul says in verse three and let's, or verse four, and let's read it. But, notice that conjunction. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Wow. How does God approach people who've turned their hearts and minds far away from their design purpose? What does Paul say in verse four? When the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared. This is really, actually, completely incredible. The righteous God does not approach you or me in judgment right now. But rather, he comes to us in kindness as a savior. He approaches us with love. 
We who've been foolish and deceived and malicious and envious and hateful, the people who've thought thoughts that are murderous and would be a source of great shame if there were a movie made about them, he's not discarding us. He's rather pursuing us with kindness. He's not seeking our death. He's seeking to save us. He's not sitting on the bridge above I-35 watching us live foolishly in the middle of the freeway. He's running down and standing between us and the approaching semi-truck of judgment. Why is he doing that? Well, the verse says because he loves us. Because he's kind. And he's just told us the truth about us ourselves. And now he's revealing in splendor and shock the truth about his grace to us. Now we're seeing the good news, aren't we? But Paul goes on. The truths are so important that he wants Titus to teach them and believers to cling to them. And he tells us some more in verse 5. He says that he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So to ensure that we comprehend the ramifications of the truth about grace, Paul states that God... That is, God, not you, saves us. And he makes sure that we are fully clear about the cause and the basis of his action of saving us. God saves you because he loves you. God saves you because he's good, because he is kind. He does not save you or me because our lives and our hearts are clean enough to be saved. The truth and the scandal about grace is that God rescues people who don't deserve to be rescued. That's the beautiful truth about grace. Listen to what he says again. Not because of works we have done in righteousness. Or as the NAS says, not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness. I mean, how could Paul make it more clear to us? We were not saved by a righteous God because we deserve to be saved. We were not saved because we had earned God's attention through our excellent behavior or our clean minds or our pure hearts. But rather, the basis of our being rescued by this righteous God has nothing to do with our righteous, if we could, deeds that we produce. In fact, Paul just told us that far from being the righteous people, we're the very kind of people who merit God's dismissal and his judgment and his condemnation. Our hearts weren't pure, they were poisoned. God saves us not because we've done anything that merits his love and his kindness. Rather, he saves us solely because he is kind and he loves sinners like us. He saves fools. God saves deceived people. He kindly and lovingly saves people who disobey him. He loves and saves malicious, envious people. God saves haters. That's a miracle. That's the miracle and the scandal and the truth about grace. Not on the basis of works which we've done in righteousness, but rather according to God's mercy. Wow. That God would save people like you and me because he is so good. Because he's so kind, because he's so merciful. That's the truth about grace, and it's actually good news. Now, the great thing is, this means that God doesn't base his love for us on our behavior in the past. It also means, if he didn't do it then, I don't think he does it now either. 
In fact, there's lots of scripture that gives us that clue. He loves us because he loves us, because he wants to love us. He chooses us because he loves us. He loves us solely on the basis of his own character and his own plan and his own mercy. And Ephesians 1.11, Paul says it so clearly and beautifully. He says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to God's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Isn't that great? He saves us on the basis of his mercy, and we never, ever stop needing that mercy. Now, does this mean that we just go on skipping through the fields of sin, picking the flowers of malice and envy, and whistling a hateful tune? No. No. As Paul says in Romans 6, may it never be. He's changing us as he saves us. He's calling us to a different, better kind of life in our hearts and our minds and our doings. And believe it or not, the good news doesn't end with the first, first part of verse 5. Excuse me. Paul stuffs the rest of this verse and the next two verses with the truth of all that his saving you entails. But we don't have any time right now to do it any kind of justice. Time is a harsh mistress. Every single phrase and clause in this passage is like a deep well. We have only sipped at the first few wells where we should be burying our buckets down into their depths and hauling up those buckets and plunging our heads into the life-giving water, but we don't have time to do that. We have to keep merely sipping and even jumping over several of these wells in the next few minutes that we have with this passage. But the great thing is, you don't have to jump and sip at home. You've got time this week. Let this be an advertisement right here and right now for this passage. New, improved. It's God's word. <laughs> Spend time in it this week. You have lots of time to just ponder and drink deeply of each phrase in um, Titus 3, 1 through 8. Just to take time to think long about the truth of grace as revealed by God in his word right here. And the great thing is our souls are so thirsty for that and God has free water. So, advertisement over. Now, let's go on. Look more at the truth about grace. Look further at what God, God does when he saves us. At the end of verse 5, he says, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, briefly, that means the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, through Christ, it goes on to say, makes us reborn and renewed. Reborn or regenerated, which means that we're recreated. It's as if a person receives a new kind of life, but it's not as if. It is a new kind of life that a person actually receives supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening to you and I who are trusting in Christ. God, by the Holy Spirit, makes a disobedient person have a new kind of life. The second thing he says is that this washing renews us. It renews our hearts and our life. It's a washing of renovation, if we wanted to say, to make something new all over again. And to illustrate, I think about the, the magic of painting a room in your house. Have any of you painted your house ever or a room in your house? You know how that goes, especially if you live in it or your kids or, or whatever, you know. My room was pink when I was 16 years old. My parents never took the time to repaint the house that the widow had been living in, and she loved the color pink. And so I got a white 
walls when I was a senior in high school. So maybe that's why I was mean to my sister is I lived in a pink room. <laughs> I'm not sure that's my excuse. I don't think God's going to buy that. But anyway, the point is, you know how magical it is to repaint a room. It's, it's sort of like making it new again, isn't it? It's snappy, it's bright, and you just think, I love my room. Well, it's like that, this washing of renewing, except it's not like that. Because when you paint, you just surface change the room. But the Holy Spirit's renewing of you is something like a magical paint that if you painted and applied it, it soaks in through into the wallboard. And it fills in the depressions. And it infuses new gypsum into the wallboard. And it's not even done then. It goes past the wallboard and it, and it sinks into the studs, the framing of that wall. And it creates in the guts of the wall new wood cells and makes the whole structure of the wall brand new. That would not be an ordinary paint you'd find at your hardware store. But that's the kind of renovation that the Holy Spirit is actually doing on a daily basis to you and I because he resides in us. The Holy Spirit poured out through the, by the Father through Jesus, note the Trinitarian emphasis of our salvation, so beautiful, on your life makes us brand new. Now the question is, can you do that to yourself? I know you can take a pink room and make it white. But can you renew yourself from the inside out? Can you change your mind and your heart? I know we spend lots of time thinking we can. But the point is that the Holy Spirit is doing it. He can. He has the power. He regenerates and renews us. And that's the truth about God's grace. What we can't do because we're broken, God does. A depraved fool can't give new life to himself. A malicious, hateful person can't renew her own heart. But the truth about you and the truth about grace means that not by your effort, not on the basis of your virtue, not having anything to do with your so-called righteousness, not by means of your works are you saved and transformed, but because God loves you and he's merciful and he pours his Holy Spirit into your life. Now, verse 6 goes on, and it talks about how richly God pours out the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we don't have time to, to, to talk about that. But the cool thing is that this relationship with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time occurrence or a one-wash or one-paint deal. It's not like getting an autograph from Ted Williams. It's not a one-time event. You meet a person and you never see them again. We're not just made new and reborn and then left to ourselves and our own efforts afterwards as though you and I were some kind of watch that got old and broke, broken and was, give, it was refurbished and then given back to the old, old owner who wore it out in the first place. That's not what's going on here. But we're under new management. There's a new resident living in the house of our lives. The Holy Spirit doesn't just wash us initially in this complete rebirth and renewal. The Holy Spirit comes to reside with you and me and to live in us. We haven't just been remodeled and given a new coat of paint, but the builder and the painter is living in us forever. That's what Jesus promised in John 14. He said that he would ask the Father 
And the Father would send the Helper. And the Helper would be in us and would be with us forever. That's what Jesus said in John 14. So what if you would believe this? What would happen if you believed these truths about yourself and about grace? I think you'd be really relieved. I think you'd be happy. I think you would look differently at your struggles and at the things that spook you about the future. I actually think you'd be confident in God. I also think you would look completely differently at the calling of God for you and I to embrace a life lived in good works. So if we had more time together, we'd get to drink from all these other wells. We'd, we'd get to think about the implications of the word richly in this verse, meaning the, the startling magnitude and unplumbable abundance of his kindness toward us. We'd get to consider again God, God's point here, John's point actually from the gospel that grace and truth, as we're seeing in this passage before us, are truly realized in Christ. We get to re be rejuvenated within our hearts, seeing the truth about grace that we don't justify ourselves, but rather we're declared righteous or justified before God by God's grace, as it says in verse 6 and 7. And also we get to fry the circuits of our minds trying to comprehend um, how it is that God makes us inheritors of this future indestructible life that can only be described by the word eternal. So we just have to sip at those things, but I encourage you to drink of them this week. So having seen the truth about ourselves and the truth about grace, we're concluding by considering briefly the truth about good works. In verse 8, you'll see, Paul commands Titus to teach the truth about us and the truth about grace emphatically. I know the ESV says insist, I just think that's really weak because there's this, the Greek has this sense of like urgent emphasis Paul, I mean, Titus, you've got to teach these things. And of course, insist does do justice, uh, justice to that if we think about it that way. But he's, he's saying you've got to strongly affirm constantly to those you lead these things that I've just taught you in the first part of chapter 3. So why is Paul so concerned about that? Why is he being so re resolute here? Um, well, I think part of it is that Paul knows that this is uncomfortable truth to us. This is counterintuitive truth to us. To believe these statements is sort of, is sort of to, to sort of not be able to do our normal things like soft-selling our sinfulness or not accepting the unconditioned grace of God as the sole basis of our salvation. But we're not soft-selling our sinfulness right now, but we're embracing the hard truth about ourselves. Apart from grace, we need God. And also, we're embracing the truth about God's grace toward us. His love and his kindness, his salvation and his mercy, his washing of us, his renewing and regenerating us. So then, what should we do about all those beautiful truths? That's the question. Well, should we just basically do nothing? No. Paul says, no. Rather, we should devote ourselves, as he says, to good works. Now, notice this. This is interesting. This is very interesting. According to God's word, loved, saved, washed, justified, enriched sinners are called by God to do good deeds. 
Therefore, if we're listening closely to God's words, it dawns on us that while our good works do not merit or cause grace, grace causes good works in us. The active grace of God does not preclude or displace human activity, but rather his grace inspires and animates our activity on a totally new basis. We don't do good works anymore to merit or confirm our salvation. We do good works because God loves us. He's working out his will through us. And as Dallas Willard said, which is such a beautiful thing he said, he said, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. So if we believe all that God has said in this passage about what kind of people we were, if we believe all that God has said and done and is doing on our behalf in this passage, then we're going to look at good works in a totally new way. Our deeds of service to God and other people have nothing to do with becoming a Christian. Our works have nothing to do with meriting God's grace or affection for us. Our works have everything to do with living out what God has done and is doing in our lives. In fact, our good works are the symptom, not the cause, of the Holy Spirit's loving presence in our lives. So finally, as we conclude, and we think about what we've seen in Titus chapter 3, I want you to note one thing here. I want you to note what role you and I played in this drama of this passage in this amazing multi-phase story of our salvation. What was your part in this story? What was your, my part in this story? Well, if you look at verse 3, you realize you and I are the villains. We are the villain in this story. We were the hateful, malicious, disobedient, envious people. And God delights in saving those people. You and I also, if you'll notice, later in the passage, played the victim. The whole plot of this passage moves on someone else's actions. God is the star and the hero of this drama. He alone is the hero of salvation. He saves. He washes he regenerates, he renews, he pours out the Holy Spirit, he justifies, he grants an inheritance. You and I, we simply humbly receive his love and his kindness and his mercy expressed in how he saves us. That's the truth about you, that's the truth about grace, and now our role in the story is completely reversed and transformed. You and I are now the beloved, redeemed, rescued child who gets to join with God and participate with our Father in what he's doing in the world to manifest his glory. That's the truth about good works. All you and I can do is just thank him and say thank you over and over and over, actually, to say thank you as a way of living, which is just another way to say, be devoted to good works. Let's pray.